RadioInfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather Podcast. We are here in Lawfather headquarters again. As always, be sure to follow us on social media. You can catch us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the wonderful TikTok. Just search for the Lawfather and you will find us. We have a lot of interesting things on tap for today. Uh, some things coronavirus related, some things uh, protest related. So let's kind of dive into some of these things. A lot of things going on in the news. And let's talk briefly from a legal perspective about one thing that I had just read about and just heard about. And it brings up kind of an interesting question. So recently there was a, a gentleman on a motorcycle and apparently he was driving into an area where there were protests or he was driving on a street and there were protesters around and you know being in a motorcycle you're pretty open and exposed to everything around you and a group of protesters come up and surround the guy now truth be told i have no idea what led to the surrounding of this one individual uh but i would challenge from a legal perspective does it matter does it matter if this guy on a motorcycle and motorcycles are loud? So I don't know if this would truly be reality. But if that guy on the motorcycle says anything in particular to this group of protesters and then they come up and surround him and you know, seemingly violence could happen after that. And from a legal perspective, who has what rights? Do the protesters have a right to surround individuals and you know, even uh, through an appearance of threatening bodily harm, do they have a right to do that? Does the motorcyclist and any individual who's surrounded, do they have a right to defend themselves? And where does that line get blurred? And I think uh, especially here in Florida, you could have some really interesting scenarios that play out. And I've talked about it before, both on the podcast and uh, with Ian Beckles on his podcast about Florida's stand your ground law. And that could become something that pops up here. Uh, if we see an increase in protests and, and people being surrounded, depending on what happens uh, kind of in the world as each day comes. But our stand your ground law in Florida really protects a person who would be surrounded. And as long as you're lawfully in a place and you're not in the process of committing a crime, you have the absolute right to defend yourself. You don't have to move. You don't have to retreat. You can do exactly what it says. You can stand your ground. So is it conceivable if this crowd begins pushing a motorcyclist, for example, using the, the real, real life, real life news story? And now all of a sudden this motorcyclist fears for his life because there's five or six people around and he pulls a gun and shoots somebody and then everybody runs. Does he legally have a defense? And I would say, yeah, I, I, I do believe so. Could the protesters be charged criminally? Also, yes. And here's the thing, right? There's a thing called felony murder and, and felony murder has been uh, publicized a little bit with the Atlanta shooting. And we're going to touch briefly on the Atlanta shooting here today, but what felony murder says, if you're in the commission of a crime and someone gets killed, and I'm paraphrasing here, but if you're in the commission of a crime and someone gets killed, you can be responsible for that killing even if you didn't pull the trigger or you didn't actively do something to cause that person's death. So in a situation like this where we have a mob of people 
and they surround one individual who's lawfully where he's allowed to be and all of a sudden shots ring out from that individual and he kills somebody or she kills somebody the other protesters i would challenge could be charged with felony murder in that situation so it's kind of an interesting scenario uh, and it's something that with stand your ground here in florida really i think gives us the ability to turn the tables on this and really create some interesting legal questions and you know keep in mind that things that that i at least in the legal nerd side of me find interesting usually have a really bad end result in real life so let's not ignore that fact that a lot of the issues that come up legally that are interesting and lead to good discussions on the legal side have really serious ramifications in the real life side which you know to that end let's look at a a situation let's look at Atlanta real quick. And as you all know, I spent six years in law enforcement, Pinellas County Sheriff's Office and Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. And let's just take a real brief look at at that. And, you know, with both of the agencies that I worked at, really progressive in terms of training and methods of training and everything else. Uh, Pinellas County Sheriff's Office, I would say, uh, I would actually challenge has the best training in the entire Tampa Bay area. I don't really know much about the rest of the state, but I would say no other agency in the state could really compare to the training that we were given in the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office. Uh, Actually, when I was there, we were focused on active shooter training. Uh, Active shooter was kind of a new concept. And we did a lot of active shooter training, which was uh, honestly very interesting. They gave us the tools that we needed. We actually had ballistic helmets. And um, I know there were some shields. I can't remember if everybody had a ballistic shield or if we all had um, just regular non-ballistic shields. Ballistic meaning that uh, they had some ability to stop some rounds of ammunition, uh, some rounds of gunfire. So, um, you know, we, we did a lot of training like that, but we also did a lot of training in shoot, don't shoot scenarios and looking at how quickly scenarios can change and how quickly the landscape around you can change and, and the ability for somebody to cause you deadly harm, even when it may not appear so, uh, on the forefront. And one of the things that was driven in was, No matter what call you go to, no matter what situation you're in, there's always a gun present. And, you know, you you look and you go, well, why? How is that so? The the person is unarmed. Well, law enforcement in the United States and Florida carries guns. So no matter what happens, there's always a gun wherever the situation arises. Now, take a look at at a taser. So most of the agencies nowadays all carry tasers. We carry tasers. Uh, I believe maybe some of the older guys when I first started in 06 may not have. But it's a very interesting type of tool. And uh, it was also called an electronic control device, an ECD. And really what it does is it incapacitates the other person. So if you shoot a taser at somebody, you're essentially incapacitating them. Okay. Now, is there, is it a little painful? Yeah, it's a little painful as it's being used and implemented, but the pain actually, the moment it stops, the pain goes away and and you resume all function back. Okay. Uh, there may be some muscle fatigue, I would imagine from, you know, an extended period just from the, the way the body works, but from the actual taser itself, it's, 
on. And then once it's off, everything's over with. And I mean, here's the thing. If you're incapacitated, you lack the ability to defend yourself. And if you lack the ability to defend yourself and you're carrying a gun, you lack the ability to stop somebody from taking that gun. Um, so let's also look at from a legal perspective. OK, some of the things that we do here on the personal injury side and you may say, well, how does personal injury law and uh, cops and training all tie into each other? Well, here's here's why and here's how in car crashes. Sometimes we have to hire biomechanical engineers, okay? And what these biomechanical engineers have been able to tell us and through uh, trials that I've done and having these experts testify at trial, there is a lag time of when you perceive something to your eyes seeing it, it traveling to your brain, your brain making a decision of what to do, and your body acting on the brain's decision. OK, there is fractions of a second of lag time that occur and the biomechanical engineers could give you an exact breakdown of the amount of time it takes for those processes to happen. So in a law enforcement situation, you have landscapes that are ever changing, especially when you have somebody who is running from you, uh, somebody who, from what I understand, had a handcuff on them. And look, you're kind of trained when you go to detain somebody, when you go to put handcuffs on somebody and you get those handcuffs on them, they're yours and you better maintain control of them. And it has the potential to change a simple misdemeanor into a felony. Now, there are certain things that once it's a felony, you have an obligation as a law enforcement officer to do. Now, somebody runs and be, before that, you get in a fight with them and they take your taser and they're running with your taser. You have an obligation to get that person, get that taser and arrest that person. Now, hopefully it ends up just as simple as that. And sometimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. Now, having been in many foot chases, I can tell you they usually end with both people being extremely tired. Um, not a whole lot of fight left, I think, for anybody. And hopefully it, it just ends in a, okay, you got me situation. Now we know the one that didn't. And, you know, it, it has unfortunate real life ramifications for everyone involved. And from a legal standpoint and from a law enforcement training standpoint, you know, this is not a clear cut one. Uh, you know, if we look at it from the biomechanical point of view, could somebody turn and point a taser and that trigger of events that I explained that the biomechanical engineers have explained to me in car crash cases, could that happen? And then in that process, somebody turn back around? Sure, it could. So, not necessarily saying one side's right, one side's wrong. Uh, and I think uh, if any of you who listen to Ian Beckles, I was listening to him uh, a couple days ago, and I think he had a very good stance on it. Is you know, if the officer truly did stand on the individual afterwards, he's wrong, and, and I agree with that. So you know, there may be some some wrong on both sides, but do two wrongs make a right? Kind of the thing that we all grew up with, do two wrongs make a right? No. Um, so 
I would say, and I, I probably didn't capture it as eloquently as uh, Ian did, but he captured it very eloquently just in terms of that, hey, you may have been wrong, but it doesn't give the other person a right to be wrong as well. And, and unfortunately, in some of these situations that we've had, uh, the wrongs have had a really significant consequences. So, you know, just something to think about, okay, because I know we hear what, the, what we're told of how things happened, but just just take it from that perspective of something that I've learned over time and, and had the training on the law enforcement side. So take that for what it's worth and let's move on into other topics and let's stay in kind of the government realm. That seems to be where things these days are really falling and where a lot of the litigation that we're seeing is coming from. City of Tampa, which we're based in Tampa, we have an office in the city of Tampa, and we have an office in Hillsborough County, um, which Tampa is in Hillsborough County, for those of you who, who aren't familiar with the area. And the mayor in Tampa recently enacted a mask ordinance saying that anybody who is going inside to a business must wear a mask. Now, my first thought on this is, does the mayor really have the authority to do it? Um, and how is this going to be enforced? And some of those questions have been answered a little bit. Um, I would say not necessarily in an intended manner. And I know this issue has been brought up in Pinellas County as well. And at one point, I believe in Pinellas County, the thought process was, was could they make it a criminal offense? And Sheriff Guterri, who uh, I believe was the chief legal counsel when I was at the sheriff's office, had a very interesting way of putting it is he said, no, I'm not going to enforce it. I'm not going to enforce mask wearing as a criminal offense. And I can't fault him for that. There's enough going on right now. There is calls all over the country to defund police and have less police interaction. And yet the police are being asked to enforce uh, something theoretically uh, that is taking place in private business. Now, what he did say, if we dive deeper into it, is, hey, if they want to make it so that we have to find the business owners for not following the rules, we can live with that. And, and I think that's fair. OK, I, I think that's somewhat fair to put the onus on the business owners. However, let's look at this from the legal perspective. And I highly question the way that the city of Tampa went about it from a legal perspective. Uh, in enacting of essentially an executive order by the mayor. I didn't go through the city council. The, the mayor just goes, this is what we're doing and we're going to enact an ordinance. So I would like to see this as a legal challenge, not because I have anything against the mayor, because I don't. Mayor Castor, she had a lot. She was police chief when I was at the sheriff's office, had a lot of respect for her as a police chief. I have a lot of friends that work for Tampa Police Department. A lot of them all had very good things to say about her as a police chief. So I want to separate the two pieces here, one being the legal perspective and one being Jane Castor as the government official. OK, always heard nothing but great things about her. So this takes nothing away from that. But from a legal perspective, I do question the authority to do that. And quite frankly, as an attorney, I would like to see someone challenge that. That's essentially how a lot of our case law gets made is someone challenging 
essentially the institution. So I'll, I'll post this out there to you all. If you get cited for the city ordinance of not wearing a mask, give me a call, 855-LAW-FATHER. You can also text me or you can email me at lawfather at tampalawfather.com and let's discuss. Let's take a deeper dive look and see if it's something we can fight. All right. I'll put that all out there to you as we all get into this mix of the coronavirus and what it's going to look like in terms of litigation and everything else. And one thing we do know about litigation in this coronavirus time is that there are, from last count, uh, a couple thousand lawsuits that are pending out there. Uh, One of them against the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party. And that is something that we're going to tackle in the next podcast. I think that is something that's going to be a very uh, interesting deep dive to look into in terms of challenging a foreign government and then also an entity that the foreign government considers government, but not, but not, but might not be an actual government. So that said, we'll take a look at that next time. I think that's going to be a very interesting topic to look at, very pertinent to the times. Uh, spoiler alert, the country we're talking about is China and the other entity is the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, And the the lawsuit that I'm referring to, the one of many lawsuits that exist out there, uh, but this one in particular is in our home state of Florida down in Miami. So very going to be a very interesting piece to look at. Uh, We're going to talk about that next time. But we're going to end the show today with case or no case. It's been a while since we've done case or no case. So let me reintroduce this to you. And what it is, this goes back to my days of doing TV, and we would do this with the hosts on the daytime show, uh, recreating this here in the podcast version, keeping things interesting, keeping you all on your toes and playing a little bit of a game. So I am going to give you three scenarios, and you're going to have to guess which scenario the person has a case. Now, let's get it started. Number one, the case of the door sign. Jamie walks into the grocery store to buy some plantains. While shopping, he decided to find a bathroom. When he left the bathroom, he got confused about where to go. Jamie saw a door and walked through it. On Jamie's side of the door, so right in front of Jamie, there was a massive sign in red and black that said, employees only, do not enter. But once Jamie steps through that door, he steps on an unknown liquid. He falls and is hurt. Jamie sues the grocery store. Does Jamie have a case? Case number two. The case of the crazy cart. Vincent is pushing his shopping cart down the aisle. He stops in front of the cereals and is looking at them, trying to decide which one to buy. Tom gets impatient, waiting for Vincent to move. Tom really wants his cereal. Tom decides to force Vincent to move by running into him with his cart. This is the first time an incident like this has happened at this grocery store. Vincent is hurt and sues the store. Does Vincent have a case? Case number three, the case of the spilled oil. CJ pulls into a gas station that is a grocery store parking lot. He stops at the pump and opens his door to get out. As soon as CJ steps out of his car, he slips on a clear, unknown liquid. The liquid had been there for a long time. It had been there since a driver spilled gas. There was no sign warning of this liquid. CJ slipped and fell on the liquid, injuring himself. CJ sues the store. Does CJ have a case? So 
is it case number one, the case of the door sign, case number two, the case of the crazy cart, or case number three, the case of the spilled oil? The correct answer is number three, the case of the spilled oil. So let's look back real quickly and let's look at why number one isn't a case, the case of the door sign. Well, it's right there in the title. There's a door sign. It says employees only. Once you're in a store, you're allowed to be in the store. You're allowed to be in the public areas of the store. So you're not trespassing. Once you cross a threshold that says employees only do not enter. Now, it doesn't have to be an exact quote, but something along those lines. You now become a trespasser and the store no longer owes you a duty of protection. OK, they owe some duty, but it's really minimal. OK, so spilled liquid on the opposite side of a do not enter sign. They're not going to likely to be likely have to protect you from that. Number two is in a case which was the case of the crazy cart. There was no what we call foreseeability. It's the first time it happened there. It's an isolated incident. Now, big key here. Vincent may not have a case against the store, but he could have a case against Tom. And the question in this one was, does Vincent have a case against the store? But like I said, he could have a case against Tom. It would be an intentional tort, which is battery. OK, um, so we have torts and we have intentional torts. And a lot of them follow what you hear about on the criminal side as well. OK, um, different burdens, different end results. Right. Criminal side, someone can go to jail. Civil side. Someone can have to pay. And, and that intentional tort is what we see on the civil side. OK, so number two is not a case against the store. Now, if this store had incidents like this popping up, you know, once a day, once a week, then might this store need to take some action to protect its customers? Yes. Uh, then it would become foreseeable that this could happen. Uh, think about this. We have uh, Black Friday around Christmas or right after Thanksgiving, getting ready for Christmas time. And Walmart, if for whatever reason, Walmart has become kind of the poster child for uh, these stampedes in the stores. Right. Uh, the door is open and everybody rushes in. And lo and behold, it always seems to be someone falls and someone gets trampled and someone gets hurt. Uh, we've seen it enough now. It's foreseeable. Walmart now owes a duty to protect against that stampede. And I believe they have in recent years. I believe they've changed some of their policies. Uh, I, quite frankly, don't like shopping on Black Friday uh, because there's massive crowds and I try to avoid that whole thing. So um, I don't really follow too much as to what stores enact. But I, I do know, as I've seen it over time, that they have tried to make some changes. And do those changes rise to the occasion of enough protection or could there still be potential for a civil suit? Uh, I, I would say that would be on a case by case base basis. Uh, having had cases with Walmart, I do know that they generally have cameras all over the place. So a lot of times we can get a pretty clear picture of what actually happened in the case. Now, number three is a case. And let's look at why. OK, so CJ gets to the gas station. There's a liquid on the ground. He steps out of his car. He has no notice. OK, and, and you know, notice means exactly what it means in regular life terms on the legal side. Did you know that it was there? Did somebody put a sign up saying there's a spill here? And if they didn't, well, that's one of the prongs that we look at for uh, what this would be, which is a slip and fall. OK, another piece that we look at is how long was it there? So let's let's say this was a scenario. 
somebody drove off just before CJ drove in, you know, seconds before, and that person was the one who spilled the gas. And then CJ drives in five seconds later, uh, steps on the gas and, and falls. That may not be enough time, probably isn't going to be enough time, but in this scenario, the liquid had been there for a long time. And it's not enough for a store to say, well, we didn't know that this condition existed because the way the law says it is you knew or should have known that this condition existed. Now, how do we get to the should have known? Well, the, the substance being there for a long period of time gets us to that should have known. You as a store, and in this case, a gas station, have an obligation and a duty to ensure that there are no dangerous conditions on your property. So you'll see a really kind of easy example that I'm thinking of um, bathrooms. Uh, public bathrooms, a lot of times in stores and restaurants, they have a log that they post up on the inside of the door that you know you don't pay any attention to because what do you care when the last time is the per- someone came in and cleaned it. But what they can then use that for is if someone gets hurt in the bathroom, the show we had somebody in that bathroom five minutes before that that condition didn't exist. It's not practical to be in there every five minutes. Now, maybe it's every 10 or 15, something along those lines. Maybe it's 30 minutes. There's going to be an industry standard, and I'm sure that there's case law on this because uh, these would be the types of things that would lend itself to there being a lot of case law to give us a guidance of what's appropriate, what's enough time, what's not enough time. But CJ does have a case against the gas station. That is really important to know and look at. And all of these cases bring up a point of you need an attorney in these kind of cases because any little change in scenario and any small change in these facts could make all three of these a case, right? Just like I said in case number two, the crazy cart case, Vincent actually does have a case. It's just not against the store. It's against the individual. But could he have a case against the store if we were to uncover the right evidence? It's possible. All right. Could the door sign case? Could there be ways to turn that into a case if some facts were slightly different? Yes. But like I said, that's why it's important to have an attorney. That's why I'm always here for you guys. 855-LAWFATHER and lawfather at tampalawfather.com. As I mentioned before, next podcast, we're going to talk about that lawsuit out of Miami against against China and the coronavirus and their handling of it. And we're also going to be answering some listener questions. So I look forward to hearing from all the listeners of the show at lawfather at tampalawfather.com. As I've mentioned before, that that email address comes directly to me for this show. Okay, it's dedicated solely to this show so that that way we don't miss anything out there and we get everybody's questions answered on air. So as always, check us out on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the wonderful TikTok. Yep, uh, no dancing though for the Law Father on TikTok. So uh, don't be disappointed if you don't see the Law Father getting involved in any of the trendy and somewhat disturbing sometimes uh, TikTok dances. (laughs) But be that as it may, that is the Law Father podcast for today, right from Law Father headquarters, Law Father out. This is an Ian Beckles flavor in your ear quick fix on Radio Influence. You know, happy Juneteenth to everybody. And I'm going to be honest, for, for one time, I actually agree with Donald Trump. It's the first time, I think. Donald Trump came out and he said uh, he actually made Juneteenth famous. He kind of did. 
He kind of did. I've heard of Juneteenth before. I've never heard anybody say happy Juneteenth. Never until today. Never. I've seen it, heard of it, read about it. Never heard anybody say happy Juneteenth until today. So Donald Trump effed up and made this day popular. He effed up. So I believe I, I agree with him on that one. Okay. So thank you, Donald. We appreciate, we appreciate that. But where are we now, man? Where, where are we as a country? Because it's so gosh darn divided that it's getting scarier every single day. And the second and every second Donald Trump's numbers are dropping and every second it drops, he does something more drastic to make us more divided. You can find Ian Beckles flavor in your ear on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio and RadioInfluence.com.